Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And we have a bumper episode coming up today. We always have a bumper episode. Of course. <laughs> we have the first gardening correspondent we've had for a while, so that's Nick Mitchell. And we also have our expert guest, part two of our interview with Emma Sherlock. Yeah, lots of great feedback from part one, so we're looking forward to putting out part two and getting you all excited about our wormy friends. Yes, and on the topic of worms, our main topic for this episode is actually all about compost. Yeah, they feature quite heavily, as you can imagine, but there is lots of other things going on in your compost heap, which we're going to delve into, the murky depths of. The wildlife of your compost bin. Yeah, and bacteria. Don't forget the bacteria. Well, that's wildlife. That's true. We're also going to talk a bit about plants that look good following the 40 degree temperatures, which were terrifying this week. And native plant of the week, which I'm taking again, which is the flowering rush or Potomus umbilatus. A pond plant. We've never done a pond plant as our native plant. No, well, we're trying to get a good mix in, aren't we? So Yeah, Yeah, it's a beautiful one, a beautiful one. But let's start off with some of the wildlife we've seen in the last month since we did an episode. We've seen loads in our garden in the last, particularly in the last week, actually. One of my favourites is the Ancestroceras wasps that keep coming to our bee drinker. And I did put a couple of posts out about them. I'm a bit obsessed with them, actually, because now I know what they are. They are a type of potter wasp. And I don't know which species exactly that we have, but we think they're gathering water to mix with mud to then seal up their their nests. And that's exactly what they do. They're called potter because they make things out of clay, basically, don't they? Exactly, yeah. This wasp keeps coming and going to our our bee drinker the bee drinker by the way is just a shallow tray full of gravel and water so insects can land on the gravel and and take a drink without drowning Um, but every time this wasp comes down this little fly follows it and it's an aggy fly it just keeps having a go at it and we're wondering what this fly could be because it sits and waits doesn't it yep it sits and stalks it basically but it doesn't seem to do anything while the wasp is in the water and stationary it waits until it flies so we wondered whether it's a parasitic or parasitoid fly that's following that wasp back to its nest and we were wondering if any of you lovely people know then please do get in touch we have had a bit of a search and we can't see any more details we can't find anything for this species yeah if any of you guys are lucky enough to have actually seen this happen or know more than us then please do get in touch yeah it looks like just like a fruit fly yeah really small little fly yeah but it's causing this ancestroceras wasp some sort of bother. <laughs> it must be so annoying just to be followed like that all the time. Yeah, I know how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yes, moving on. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give a shout out to my dad. He's a listener to the podcast. We were there. We were just stopping over on the way to, where were we going? Oh, Sharing to Hampton him. Court, weren't we? That oh. was that weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah. yeah. And... Um, <laughs> We were in his garden and there must have been sw- 50 swifts overhead. Oh, it was overhead. so glorious. The most swifts I've ever seen. And they were just circling. And again, they were a bit aggressive with each other. Well, I don't know if it's aggressive. I think it's fledgling time. And I think a lot of them were family units with the chicks chasing down the adults still for food. Oh, maybe. A bit like teenagers yeah. demanding meals for free, even though they're old enough to go and earn yeah. money. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was really quite spectacular and I'm sure it's what the sky used to look like everywhere much more oh, absolutely. Um, you know, in the past, but lovely to see over the skies of Peterborough. Yeah, and he also in his garden had a hummingbird hawk moth oh. 
And we've started to see these coming into some of the gardens that we, we work in as well. So we've seen quite a few of those. This is the time of year for them, but it's just so nice when they come out, isn't it? It is. Anecdotally, though, I have seen a lot more people on uh, social medias saying they've seen hummingbird hawk moth. Some people for the first time ever, and I don't know if it's just oh, because nice. people are learning more about it or whether there's actually just a, it's a really good year for them, yeah. which, could, which could, of course, be the case. Yeah, if you don't know, we'll put a link to everything that we're talking about into the show notes but this is quite a large moth with a really long proboscis it's sort of straw appendage that sticks out the front to get into the into the middle of flowers for the nectar but it it hovers like, like a hummingbird, hummingbird. Yeah. they are amazing yeah beautiful little thing <laughs> also very fast couldn't get a photo unfortunately um moving on we have also seen an emperor dragonfly doing a poo yeah i was watching it in the garden <laughs> a huge one at fresh huge poo well it was well i don't know <laughs> probably for it moving on from our sightings because we could sit here and talk about that all day but that would be a, a one hour that you might not want to listen to <laughs> um plants looking good following the 40 degree temperature yes commiserations to anybody who's had plants that have died in the last yeah. couple of days i just wanted to say we're not actually doing a new section but one quick bit for you the rhs have just launched a survey asking people what plants have died because often heat stress on plants can take a a week or so to show up Mm. and so they've launched this survey and if in the last week or so you've started to notice plants wilting and dying off following the heat then do answer this survey you can find it on their website and because it gives them a better idea of the plants that are going to respond negatively to climate change basically i know our maiden hair fern in our bathroom just it literally looked like it melted and it had loads of water so it wasn't water stress but it just could not take those temperatures yeah but maiden hair ferns can't take anything that's true but yes we were quite proud of it this year it's the first time it's actually looked like a plant they are nesh (laughs) if nesh is a word that can be used oh, for a plant. But I it's love for a it. I love it. I did love it before it looked like it does now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so winners in the garden, though. We noticed that Galenia trifoliata, which is already one of our favourites for dry shade, we already know it deals with these like quite dry conditions, it looked totally untouched by the temperatures. Yeah, Even when we hadn't better. watered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like, bring it. Little white sort of flushed pink flowers, late spring. Yeah, almost like little sort of like starry butterfly type flowers. And the trifoliata uh, gives away the fact that it's got three leaves or three lobes per leaf. So it's, it's a very dainty looking plant. It does seem to need to bulk up before it starts really looking good. Yeah. But it's worth the wait for sure, especially if we're going to get more 40 degree temperature summers. Yep. Um, another winner was Hylotelephium, aka sedum, to most people, and that's the the, the flower that is succulent and it flowers sort of coming into flower now, actually, isn't it? Late summer, and it's really really good for lots of our pollinators as well. Yeah, autumn joy is the one that everybody has, I think, isn't it? The pink yeah. one um, with sort of quite pale green leaves, but it's su- it's tough as our boots. It is. It's absolutely brilliant, and yeah, like Ellie said, really good for the bees and things, and. Hebees are all looking fantastic. They are, actually, yeah. Yeah. But, by the way, also, all hebees have been renamed. If you didn't know, they're all now Veronica. <laughs> That's going to take a while. That is going to take a while to catch on. <laughs> yeah. We had a very confusing time down at RHS Wisley, didn't we? When we walked through, the RHS was doing a, a trial on hebees, but they were all labelled as Veronicas, and we thought, they can't have just forgotten to change the labels. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually went and spoke to one of the horticulturalists there, yeah, and they've all been renamed. He that's was, genetics for he you. He was expecting riots. That was the yeah. funniest thing. <laughs> he <laughs> he said the Hebe well. Society, of which there is one, were not Kicking happy. off. <laughs> Kicking off. 
the final ones looking good in our garden are Veronica Astrum. Mm. That actually was a bit suffering in the heat. That was but, quite wilty. Well, we noticed that like lots of plants, they do tend to wilt when it gets particularly hot and dry, but then it picks up by the evening yeah. without extra water. So it is, it is a defense mechanism as well, this wilting. So it's important to recognize when that is happening and when it's, when it's not something you need to take immediate action for, but you only get to know that by actually watching the plants in your garden. Yeah. But yeah, it's done really well since, and the flowers have just been amazing for covered I've never in seen so many bees and hoverflies on any plant in no. our garden. Very That's popular. Veronicastrum virginicum. So yes. again, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And all salvias are doing fantastically well. Yeah. And of course, salvias include a lot of the garden herbs now. So rosemary is actually a type of salvia. Yeah. So sage, um, loads of things that you can grow at home, basically. They're all, yeah, loving this heat. We also, as well as going out and about in gardens, we visited Hampton Court Flower Show for the first time. We're sort of doing the rounds with the flower shows, aren't we? We do one a year. We, yeah, it's taken a while to get... We've only been to about four, I think, so it's been, we're in our fourth year. And it really, really impressed with this one because the time of the year that it happened meant that lots of things were naturally in flower already. So nothing was forced like you often see at Chelsea. Yeah. Which meant that a lot of the gardens that they had, I felt could be replicated by people at home. That was a big difference. We were saying this as we were going around, weren't yeah, we? You was... know, there were actually ideas you could pick up and just put straight into your garden. Yeah, it was so, one really, really good. Loved and it. Quite refreshing, we felt. Yeah, we did find a couple of new plants to us there. One I really liked is a type of herbaceous perennial called Francoa sonchifolia, and that's got upright racemes of these little pink flowers. Um, and also, they had a couple of um, prostantheras. And these, again, do quite well with heat if you wanted to grow one in your garden. Some are hardy, some are only half hardy. The hardy one is cuneata, which you can find in lots of places. But they had a new one to us there, which was called lazianthos, and it's quite a large shrub. Um, Like I say, only half hardy, but both have sort of peppermint scented leaves oh, they're lovely yeah really just, gorgeous to brush past if you if you yeah. can plant one next to a, a path or something like that do we see any pollinators on the flowers at the show did you notice well actually i don't know about that one in particular but there were so many skippers butterflies oh, i mean it was totally rammed the whole festival was yeah, just including 90% skipper yeah. butterfly <laughs> <laughs> everywhere you turned there was one sitting there <laughs> yeah but i i think our favorite garden well certainly my favorite garden was the forest bathing garden. Yeah, same. Yeah, no, and that lovely. had a big sort of native meadow planted up on one side and then it had silver birches overhanging and it was supposed to, it was basically a footpath through a woodland glade. What was really noticeable, and this goes again for the drought period that we've just had, is the temperature difference beneath trees compared to outside, you know, around the trees was phenomenal. So that garden in particular, it was a hot day that we were there, yep. wasn't it? And that garden was cool because we were in the shade of the tree. I know it's a very obvious statement, but I think no, a lot of people true. don't think about it. And that garden was only, well, I don't know how long it was, and maybe eight metres long, four metres wide, something yeah, like that. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not a huge space, but just that one bit of shade yeah. made such a difference. And it was, it was really lovely. Yeah, full of foxgloves and, oh, it was beautiful. And right next to that, of course, was a stand being manned by Kate Bradbury, Yay! who we met for the first time, so... Yeah, we sort of pounced, pounced her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really lovely to meet Kate and she was 
absolutely doing a fantastic job teaching loads of people all about her hoverfly lagoon that she had and I think actually she had um, hoverflies emerging while she was at the festival I saw this on Twitter oh cool um, I loved her stall it was brilliant it had poo it had skulls it had tree bits it yeah, had she brought insect. a whole collection of skulls <laughs> worth checking out Kate we've obviously reviewed one of her books a while yeah, ago right. now so yeah if you are a beginner to wildlife gardening then it's just called wildlife gardening yeah, I, think I think it is yeah it's it's a fantastic book anyway we we reviewed it on the podcast you can go out and check that we also accosted i think that's fair to say uh guy barter (laughs) yeah he wasn't on a stool no he was enjoying a a sit sit down down. (laughs) Uh, ben recognized him and yeah we chatted away he is the rh one of the rhs podcast uh presenters and he's an absolutely fantastically lovely chap and he was also saying how much hampton court makes him happy as well so in terms of, of all the festivals i think that's one of his favorites isn't yeah, it? i think he's their chief horticulturalist isn't he yeah do you believe so yeah yeah, yeah. love talking dog. about his brassicas on the rhs podcast and talking of the rhs podcast <laughs> i'm gonna insert some clapping sounds here for ellie <laughs> because ellie has in the last month been on the rhs or growing with the rhs i think it's called <laughs> their podcast anyway she's been on it twice Yeah, I slipped Guy a tenor for a <laughs> festival. <laughs> I didn't really, guys. No, we, it was Insect Week a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Maybe three weeks ago. Yeah. And the RHS podcast wanted someone to talk about how to attract insects into your garden. So they called us up um, at the very last minute and said, would we do it? Ben had to go to work and I actually had COVID again while I was being interviewed. So I was off. So I was available and yeah, they asked me lots of questions and it's been, I've been on twice and about shrubby sinkfoil, which is one of our favourite native garden-worthy plants. So that was exciting. It was exciting. Go over, have a listen if you're not sick of our voices. <laughs> no, she was fantastic. Well oh, done, Ellie. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Well, that's enough for us for a minute because we are going over to the first garden correspondent we've had for ages. And where are we going? We are going down to Thanet to listen to Nick Mitchell. Hi guys, my name's Nick Mitchell and um, I'm an electrician is my job and I'm a wildlife conservationist as a hobby and I run Wildlife Conservation in Thanet, uh, a Facebook group and I try and get wildlife conservation out into the public eye in many various ways. Now, I live in Ramsgate in the southeast of the country in, in, in an area called Thanet and um, I moved into my house um, with my wife and two children about 12 years ago and it's lovely we've got a row of detached houses and as soon as I got here you know you start looking after your house you get your lawnmower out and all my neighbours have got their lovely tight striped stripy lawns out the front our front gardens are all open Uh, there's no fencing so um, every house has to look its part you know and 
although when I first moved into my house, the first thing I'd done was plant trees, rip up concrete, put in a pond, put up bird boxes, I never really thought about letting my lawn go wild. And, you know, in the recent sort of six years, people have started talking about doing it, and even more recent, No Mo May. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to have a wild patch. So I started my first little wild patch. It was about a third of the front garden. It was so awesome. I thought, guess what? Next year, I'm going to let the whole lot go wild. And my wife was like, all the neighbours won't like that because they've all got their stripes and then it's going to be like a sudden wild house in the middle. But I did it. You know what? I thought, why am I trying to be like my neighbours with all their stripes? (laughs) Because it's my front garden. I'm not out there sunbathing, playing cricket, having a picnic. It's just a lawn it's it's doing nothing and and as a monoculture of short grass it's doing nothing for wildlife and i want wildlife i encourage wildlife to my garden in every garden decision i make i want my garden to be full of life to be full of love and to be an exciting place to be and i let my lawn go totally wild and today right now it's the evening the sun's setting down and it's full of flowers Um, i've got corn cockles i've got corn flowers i've got loads of poppies i've got vetch i've got um some lovely teasels coming up um i've got yellow rattle in there down lower down that's important i've got all sorts going on there and it's a real pretty picture and i live on a coastal trail called the viking coastal trail i get lots of people going past my house and they'll go past my house on their bike or on foot and they'll have like six or seven houses with their neat stripy lawns and they'll get to my house and be like, whoa, look at that. It's like crazy. But you know what? My lawn is is who I am and I'm brave enough to go for it. And I do it for wildlife, but where I am with this wild lawn, back in the day, before it looked as amazing as it did now, a few years ago, people would stop and shake their heads. I remember hearing one couple going, I wouldn't want to live next to that house. It's scruffy, isn't it? And I remember one couple saying, "Uh, has he even got a lawnmower? Um, Like jokingly, you know, people, uh, and I'd see people just shaking their head because my lawn was a bit wild. But over the years, it's really coming to its own and it's just full of flowers. And in recent years, there's more acceptance. So many people are outside my house taking photos of my lawn. It's appeared on Twitter many a times, viral. It's had thousands of views. It gets shared all over the place. Um, So I've got it there, not just for wildlife. I've got it to inspire passers-by. I've got it for my kids. My kids love my wild lawn. I've cut a nice little tidy curved riding through the middle with my lawnmower. And I've done that because it's nice and my kids can walk through it. And I've also done it to show people that I own a lawnmower. You know, this lawn is intentional. And um, of course, it's full of bees. I've got loads of different bumblebees here. I'm not really into honeybees, but I get honeybees. And I've got mason bees. I've got leafcutter bees. I've got lots of different butterflies. I put my moth trap out at night and I get some amazing moths. And I even have bats coming over. I have froglets hopping around in the lawn. It is so full of life. But where I've got it here, I kind of love the fact it inspires people because everyone compliments me on it and it's new to everyone you don't really see this kind of stuff done that often i work in construction and a lot of jobs i work on they're just concrete in their front gardens and and i try and like sort of very carefully tell them about how exciting it could be to have a wild patch and they sometimes say i haven't got time they haven't got time for life um (laughs) but honestly if they were to come around my house and see my lawn they might think differently so um yeah that's my lawn it's full of color and i love it and it goes on to inspire and your shows really helped me to um learn a lot about wildlife gardening not that it bothers me 
but I'm quite a minority. I feel like a minority being into wildlife. I can point something out to someone I'm with and they won't have a clue. And I feel like I'm the only person that knows about it. So to have your guys' podcast out there talking about wildlife gardening is brilliant. I can really learn from it and I can really feel connected to all the other people that are as engaged as I am with the natural world. So yeah, the powers of a wild lawn. Honestly, it brings me so much joy. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, guys. Wow, thank you, Nick. That was absolutely brilliant and really, really good to see your lawn. And if you want to hear yourself on this podcast, chatting, wildlife gardening, things you've been up to, then send us a recording. You can do this on your phone. We're looking for about five minutes or less just of you talking about what you've been up to in your own gardens for wildlife. And you can send that to thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. Yes, we've actually had a few recently, which is wonderful. So you're going to hear two gardening correspondents next time. But then we need more. So send them in. We are now going to delve into the wonderful world of compost and give you a brief science lesson as to how the stuff you pile up in your heaps actually turns into the brown and crumbly black gold, which seems to magically make our plants grow better. We thought we'd take you through the process by starting with the big things, that's the creatures we can see with our human eyes living in amongst it, down to the things we can't see, like the bacteria and fungi. And hopefully the diversity of both will absolutely blow your minds. Kaboom. Boom, leaving you to take extra special care of your compost, or if you don't have a heap, then to create one. There are two ways to look at the benefits of your heap to wildlife. The first is that the heap is in itself a habitat, which offers shelter to all sorts of things. This is important because it adds to the overall diversity in your garden. You can think of it as being a bit like a microcosm of a woodland floor habitat. The second is that the invertebrates, in particular the detritivores, are actually a large part of the process of making compost that you can then, of course, then use to mulch your plants and feed your soil. I've only got 10 minutes to talk about this whole massive topic. So I'm going to whiz through the first part of what will use your compost habitat. And by the way, guys, this is not an exhaustive list. Over winter, you can find all sorts hunkering down from hedgehogs, if you're really lucky, to small rodents like voles and wood mice. Our cold-blooded amphibians, reptiles, will also seek out a compost heap as they enter brumation in the colder months. And that's basically their equivalent of hibernation that we see in some mammals. That's nice. Nice word. Brumation. I thought I'd sneak that one in. Yeah, this is just the period that they slow down metabolically. But on warmer days, they can actually become active again. And that includes our newts, frogs, toads, lizards, slowworms, and our snakes. The amphibians in particular like the moist environment of a compost bin because then their skin doesn't dry out, which if did happen would cause them not to be able to breathe. In winter, you'll also come across queen bumblebees, particularly the buff and white-tailed bumblebees, which will be sheltering in your heap. And in addition, these two species and some other bumblebees like cardabees will also make use of drier pockets in your heap if they exist to make their summer nests. Yeah, confession time. Oh dear, confessions. Yeah, the other week I was digging over a compost heap, um, turning one bin into another actually. 
And uh, in the bottom of one bin, right at the base, was a cardaby nest, Aww. which I hadn't seen. It was buried, like I said, right at the bottom. And obviously, they make it all out of moss, so it just looked like it was in the unrotten compost. Um, so I just didn't see it. Fortunately, when I dug it up, I, I, I didn't put a fork through it because they make this sort of big ball of moss. Mm. And I moved the whole ball in one. And then I could just put it back. I just put it right back where it was. And I covered it gently with a layer of what was on top of it before. And I went back to the same garden this week and they were using the nest still. Yay. Okay. All was not lost. So saved. Pays to be vigilant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was just because, you know, I I started to see loads of the cardabies. They weren't aggressive, but they were just flying around. Stress. Stress. Yeah. I actually clocked, clocked what it was. But yeah. Okay. Well, wildlife gardeners can make mistakes too sometimes as well as those cardabies and other bumblebees some beetle species will also breed in your compost heap like the beautiful rose schaefer which we actually saw for the first time just a couple of years ago and they can be found in your compost heap in its larval stage because the larvae eat decaying plant matter and last but not least you may also find that quite often ants like the crumbly nature of a rotting heap for nesting in though i will say if you have a lot of ants it could be an indication that you need to wet the contents a little bit this is just a taster of the biodiversity that a heap can bring and with all this wildlife it can be hard to know the best time to turn and use your compost as ben found out and we do actually recommend that mid spring or mid autumn are probably the least destructive times to turn a heap if you can actually leave it till then it's kind of good because that's also when you're most likely to be using the compost to mulch your borders yeah, generally. spring and autumn are yep. generally the good times to do it and then also by hopefully not doing it in midsummer you'll minimize disturbing any nesting creatures ben Moving on then to the larger soil-dwelling wildlife that actually helps to transform compost. In soil science, this is collectively known as the mesofauna. And while we're not strictly talking about soil in this mini lesson, in a natural ecosystem, the same composting process would be happening on and just below the surface of the soil. Most notably, I guess, after autumn leaf fall in our temperate climate here in the UK. Therefore, it involves quite a lot of the same creatures. In short, Without our detritivores, and by the way, guys, that's any creature that feeds on rotting organic matter, we would all be neck high in rotting vegetation. The action of gastropods, that's the slugs and snails, wood lice, springtails, mites and worms in chewing, digesting, pooing and simply moving about and mixing and churning cannot be understated. This mechanical action hugely increases the surface area of composting vegetation, which makes it much more likely to be able to be worked on successfully by bacteria and fungi. Out of all of those groups of creatures, the worms absolutely deserve special attention. And we're not just doing that because we've just interviewed Emma Sherlock. It's because they're essentially the JCBs of the soil world. Or as Charles Darwin said in a slightly more poetic way, they are nature's ploughs. In fact, they're so important that they're credited as being ecosystem engineers. And for context, that's the same title that we give beavers. One reason they're so important is because of the sheer volume of organic matter they can eat, which breaks it down into smaller and smaller particle sizes. But another is because of how their digestive system works. Worm poop, or casts, are recognised as a fantastic resource for improving the quality of our soil. And this is because the physical structure of worm casts is crumbly and porous. This opens soils up and lets essential air through to plant roots. Within the worm as well, saliva is secreted like a lubricant around ingested decaying matter to help it move through the worm's digestive tract. 
Calcium carbonate is also secreted as a waste product by the worm and this acts to neutralise humic acids that would be naturally produced by the decomposition of the plant material inside it. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. If humic acids exist... Oh, we'll come on to that later. Oh, you're going to negate everything I've just said. No, That'd be hilarious. No. We obviously don't talk enough, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, big, big goings on in the soil world, though. But it is acidic, at least. Oh, yeah, for Yes, sure. okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. Well, the worm neutralizes the acid. In the gizzard of the worm, small stones and muscular action also act to grind up the mix of soil and vegetation with the help of enzymes. Yeah, I've got to say that was the number one takeaway I had from Emma Sherlock last time that worms, worms have, have a gizzards. gizzard just like a bird. Yeah, yeah that's it's true. fascinating. And then yeah. they actually purposefully ingest bits of grit to help yeah. break down plant matter. Also one of my favourite words, gizzard. Gizzard. It's yeah. just nice to say, isn't it? <laughs> From there, from the gizzard, it moves into the intestine where more enzymes and bacteria break down the material, enabling the worm to absorb the nutrients, minerals, proteins and carbohydrates that it needs from its food. Ben's going to do the chemistry lesson in a minute, but studies have shown that the specific microbiota and microenvironment of the earthworm's gut stimulates the action of bacteria already in the soil, sort of acting like a living laboratory or factory. Isn't that amazing? All of this together means that the resulting cast or poop is neutralised in terms of its acidity. It's also really well mixed, so the soil and the organic matter are mixed together because of that gizzard action. It also has a really high water and nutrient retention property. And if that wasn't enough, it also has added beneficial bacteria and enzymes. Because of the unique chemical reactions that take place inside our Wrigley friends, worm casts have been shown to have much elevated quantities of essential nutrients like nitrogen, potassium and phosphates, which are all excellent for our plants. Go worms! Go worms! <laughs> <laughs> and of course it's the branding worms, the types that you tend to get in compost as well. Those are the little red wrigglers. They're the most frequent, but we do definitely get those, um, is it endogaic, you know, the ones that, that, that dive deep into the soil. We found some massive worms in our compost bin. Brilliant. Well, now I'm going to go on to the things smaller than you can see. So compost bins are a microcosm of the wider soil microbiome, which is basically what Ellie said as well. You know, all the soil life that you would normally get distributed around is concentrated in the compost bin. And this microbiome, all the things too small to see, are made up largely of four major groups. So we have the bacteria, archaea, fungi and protozoa but also you could include viruses in there if you wanted we don't want to talk about viruses anymore no no that's true (laughs) of these the most important in the compost bin anyway are bacteria and fungi as ellie's already said now these get into the bin via the bits of soil attached to the plants that you're pulling out of the ground and putting into the compost bin you know when you're pulling plants up or so on or actually even within the plants themselves because some of the bacteria and fungi have colonised the plant. So when you cut off a leaf and put it in the compost bin, it's included in it. And then also they can travel in water. So if you've got you know, your compost bin just on the ground, the bacteria and fungi and the spores as well can travel in water just as it rains from the soil into the bottom of your bin. All of these groups, together with the soil fauna that Ellie was talking about, gradually break down the plant material into smaller and smaller chunks by direct consumption, or by releasing extracellular enzymes into the soil. So bacteria and fungi actually release enzymes outside of their bodies into the soil to break down compounds into pieces that they can then later consume. In the soil, this process happens fairly slowly. 
But in compost bins, it's concentrated because obviously we cram loads and loads of rotting plant material all in one place. You know, in the autumn, you get leaf litter, but you tend not to get a metre deep load of old rotting brassicas or something all in one place. (laughs) Now, in a well-mixed bin, the heat produced by the respiration of billions of these organisms simultaneously working away can heat the compost bin to well over 70 degrees. And if you are producing fast, hot compost in your own allotment or in your garden at home, you might have noticed some of the heat that can come off it. Now, at 70 degrees, the bacteria actually pasteurise themselves. (laughs) So they kill themselves off. But in the process, they also handily kill off lots of pathogenic viruses, so viruses that would be causing problems to your plants, but also weeds and weed seeds in the process. And this effectively gives you sterile compost at the end. But it's also good to leave your compost after it's heated up to this point, it starts to cool down because then lots of the other organisms will recolonize the heap. And this is called maturing the compost heap. So lots of those things that Ellie was talking about will come back into the compost once it cools down enough for them to live in it. However, exactly how the process of this material breakdown happens, or even what compost actually is, it's a bit of an open question at the moment. You're not going to give us the answer. I was waiting for you to give me all the details. <laughs> well, let me first say okay. that at Horticultural College, and you said even at school you were taught this, we were taught that plants were broken down basically into smaller molecules, which were then recycled into plant-available nutrients, the nitrates and things like that, which are obviously really important to plants. Basically, plants get broken down into the same chemicals that you would include in a fertiliser that you put on the soil. Uh, And this happens, of course, by the bacteria and the fungi. But as this breakdown happens, some molecules are too large to be broken down. They were unable to be digested by these enzymes in the soil. And due to the quirks of their chemical structure, they became brown stuff known as hummus, which was the basis of soil organic matter. Okay, so hummus, we are not talking about chickpeas. (laughs) We are talking about hummus spelled H-U-M-U-S. And... Hummus is supposed to consist of humic acids, like Ellie was talking about earlier, fulvic acids and other long chain molecules. So this is what we both learned at Horticultural College and only five Clark years ago. In geography, GCSE. Big up Mr. Clark. <laughs> He's listening. <laughs> and Mr. Pink, my geography teacher. Mr. Who? Pink. I thought you said pig. Mr. Pink's also a very good name. He was a good, he was a good geography teacher. Anyway, this hummus was supposed to be stable in the soil and resistant to change. In in other words, it was supposed to be what gave soil nice crumbly dark soil it's organic bulk right but a paper in the journal nature in 2015 called into question whether this substance called hummus really exists the paper explained that the lab tests for humic acids were flawed in many ways and that there have been no direct observations of hummus in the soil so what they do in labs is they they take a bit of soil and they put it in a really really strongly alkaline solution and out of this they precipitate some brown stuff and they also then separate it out and they can find the the humic acids and and the fulvic acids but when they've looked at these things that have precipitated out they thought that they were really really large long chain molecules that were stable in the soil hard to break down but it turns out that a lot of these long-chain molecules are actually just aggregations of smaller molecules. In modern times, we've had much better methods of actually looking directly down into the soil, much better imaging methods. And when we've actually done this, or scientists, I say we, when scientists have done this, they can't actually find these molecules in the soil. 
And this paper kicked off a whole new way of thinking in the soil sciences. As I looked further into the research, I found that basically everything I knew about soil organic matter and compost was completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) From the way that chemicals bind to aggregates, to the glues that stick aggregates together, to the way dead microbes affect the carbon cycle, the paper in 2015 has changed a lot of what we we understand. And now if you read um, soil science papers that have come out in the last seven years, they'll often be referencing the fact that there's this sort of paradigm shift going on in the soil sciences. Again, ongoing science. We know very, very little about the soil, don't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so a lot of the science based on humic acids is, is absolutely right. It is true. But the assumption that there was this thing called hummus stable in the soil lasted for generations and generations gave the soil its bulk that idea is under threat basically Mm. but i really wanted to go beyond that to delve properly into this research and give you a sort of flow chart outline of what these processes are going on but it just turns out as i've said that there is just too much new research going on at the moment for me to get my head around (laughs) because i'm not a soil expert there's just too many papers to read (laughs) and i'm probably not clever enough to understand it So I'm just going to leave things a few years to calm down. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm going to come back to the topic of soil. Because as I said in this paper in 2015, even some of the textbooks that are still coming out now, that the information that's in them could quite possibly be misleading or just wrong. So I, I, you know, there's there's going to be a change coming in the way that we understand soils. And it's going to take... I say scientists to actually sort of synthesize this information down into a way that is more useful for gardeners to understand right so rather than give you a dissertation on the whole of soil chemistry then here's a random factoid (laughs) (laughs) just one factoid about just one group of bacteria that are in your compost bin definitely and these are the actinomycetes in particular the streptomyces genus as the streptomyces work away in the bin or in your soil they release a chemical called geosmin, which is part of a group of aromatic oils called the terpenoids. Geosmin produces a lovely earthy smell, and it's a constituent part of the mixture of scents known as petrichor, a word which describes the smell of summer rain. Mm, When it hits the dry earth. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Basically, dry soils collect aromatic oils. So these oils produced by these bacteria in the ground but also by oils released by plants either in the air that then fall down onto the soil or released through their roots soils collect these oils but when hit by droplets of rain the oils are then atomized into the air and we can smell them wow i was actually gonna ask you what petrichor petrichor is just the other day because it did rain yesterday here which was very welcome yes and it was just lovely the scent everywhere was this when i know it's jasmine yeah and it's really important to humans in fact humans are so attuned to the smell of jasmine that we can detect it at concentrations of just 100 parts in a trillion whoa and there's there's got to be something deeply psychological about that i do i mean i thought it was just me that got excited when i smelled a a nice ripe mature compost bin (laughs) (laughs) you know when it's at that stage where you feel like you need to put your face in it that's what i always say yeah because yeah you say it smells smells good good. when it you know i I must stress not the bit where it's all very slimy and rotting that's not good don't go near that but oh that's so good that's interesting yeah in fact this compound geosmin smells so good it's used in a lot of perfumes Uh, and also it's a compound that gives plants like beetroot and chard their distinctive earthy flavor because plants in that group take a particularly large amounts of geosmin from the soil into into their leaves and into their roots 
Now, why do these bacteria bother releasing this oil? Well, many compounds produced by the Streptomyces genus are really important and valuable antibiotics used regularly in human medicines, but it's thought that they release this scent to attract soil invertebrates. And these invertebrates come along, attracted by the smell, and in the process they get covered by the bacteria's spores. One of the interesting things about these Actinomycetes bacteria is they make these sort of filamentous tubes that come out like a fungi does Mm. so often they're mistaken for fungi and for a long time they were thought that they were part of part of the fungi but they're not their bacteria and then these soil invertebrates once they walk through an area full of spores the spores attach to the body and then they carry them off elsewhere so next time you smell the sweet scent of your homemade compost thank the streptomyces for perfuming it for you Now we're moving on to part two of our interview with Dr Emma Sherlock at the Natural History Museum, talking all things worms. So digging, not that bad. We do try, I mean, this is not really much point in digging over every border every year, in our mind. I think that is a very outdated now um, idea around in gardening which is really good but there are some instances where we have found we need to dig like to get perennial weeds out so we should stop feeling super guilty yes, about that no, no don't feel guilty about that don't feel guilty <laughs> at all about that now, like i said if you do slice an earthworm it will regrow its tail it's yeah okay but everyone usually gardeners are amazing at trying to avoid earthworms where yeah. they can and rescuing them from paths and yeah yeah you guys are, are amazing with your earthworms you cherish your earthworms and appreciate them and, and that that's incredible very much so ben um i often stop ben working to tell him about a big earthworm that i found oh. <laughs> like ben you gotta come and see this yes no well i just love them they're great they're characters for me oh, definitely <laughs> well when you start to to dig them and actually have a look at them they are characters like you'll see the really different colors as well so we've got about 29 different species in the uk but gardens if you do your gardening right for earthworms you'll actually get one of the biggest numbers woodlands and gardens have the most diversity of earthworm species because you have so many different habitats so different species like kind of different areas so some will like being under lawns others want to be in dead wood others under rotting leaves others in your compost others in your borders if you've put you know if you've got loads of nice organic matter going into those and you're turning it over or, or you're um, putting stuff on top to rot down yes others were like that so yeah i think gardens because they're also you sometimes have ponds some of the species like really waterlogged areas so the edges of your ponds are great places and yeah gardens are fantastic places and then so then if you start exploring them and really examining them you'll see some are like bright green some of them are really stripy especially the ones in your compost um, and they're the ones that if you um not for long just just like irritate them slightly they produce that bright yellow goo that that some people can really smell and some people can't okay it's quite an odd phenomenon you can see which ones you are but um yeah and that's to um you know 
get birds to think, oh, this isn't going to taste too good. But that's amazing in itself. That's interesting about... So that's with compost worms. Yes. Only compost worms do that. Or... Well, others you can see um, build up the same similar sort of yellow waste matter, but it usually goes down to their tail ends. Okay. So you'll see some with just a, a, a yellow tail. Um, like the big sort of bluishy grey um, worm we've got, Sinaeum, that quite often builds up this waste product. But it's only the compost worms that seem to, when Ooze you... Use it. Yes, to, on, on purpose. Okay. And it has this distinctive smell. But yeah, they're okay. the only ones I know that do that on purpose. Ah, I've not um, smelt the worms before. Oh, or As far as I know, I've not irritated any enough. Well, to, no, like, we don't want to irritate <laughs> No, no, no. We don't want to irritate no. But just if you're digging out your compost and, and you see one, if you have it sort of just on your hand, just for a minute or so, you'll, ah. you'll sometimes see it does that. And then you can put it straight back. I asked the question before to another person, actually someone that is more of a... She, she builds wormeries. Um, and I, I just observed that birds, like robins, are normally so friendly and, you know, very uh, involved in eating the things that you dig out. <laughs> they don't seem to go for those um, compost worms. So is, this ah. could be it. This there's yes. a reason <laughs> I, I didn't know about that that they were but that could well be why yeah it's um yeah but i do think it's strange that it's that thing that some people can smell it and some people can't but i, I think clearly because it's designed for the birds they can so yeah that's very interesting yeah. that you can back it up with field observations i like that yeah, and staying with the compost worms, we just wanted to know, where do they come from? Because we build a lot of compost bins. You know, it's our mission to put in as many as possible around Nottinghamshire in our minds. But the worms just sort of appear. Now, where do they come from? Right, well, that's a really, really good question. And actually, maybe you can help us with that too, because uh, we did start as the Earthworm Society of Britain. I'm um, chair of the Earthworm Society of Britain. And uh, yeah, when we, uh, when we set it up, we were really interested in that question too. So we did do a big questionnaire out to all our members to try and tell us if they had a closed bin or an open bin and did they put worms in when they started or did they not? And uh, yeah, we still didn't quite kind of get to the bottom of it. But basically there are lots of ways obviously worms can get into your compost bin so as I mentioned they have these little cocoons so if you're putting material into your compost bin then these little cocoons could just be amongst that material because even if they're in a part of the soil that isn't great for them so there maybe isn't quite enough moisture or the um, it's not uh, rich enough in organic matter for the compost worms these little cocoons can stay dormant for years they can stay dormant a long time um, so it could be that they're there and they're just going in with your your compost as you're putting it in also if you don't have a completely closed compost so it's got sort of an open bottom then actually earthworms have chemoreceptors sort of over their bodies so as long as the organic matter isn't too far away they can actually sense that they're getting closer and closer to something that they prefer to what they're in something tasty yes so they can travel and so they could be traveling towards that and then they'll know that if they come up they'll get to the compost so that we understand um so those two ways are quite clear. But if you've got a completely closed compost bin and you haven't put in much new stuff, um, yes, then there are a few anomalies of, well, how on earth did that happen? 
Um, so for those, yes, there's a few unanswered questions of, of what's happened there. But I think most of them come in through either the earthworms sensing this new rich organic source that's nearby or the cocoons or baby earthworms. Um, if you're putting things in, they can really hide. I mean, they, mm. they can be really tiny and actually harder to see than the cocoons. So they can get in that way. There are people saying about the cocoons falling off bed, birds' feet while they fly. I don't really... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I've never really bought skeptic. into that one. She's a sceptic. <laughs> maybe that will turn out to be true. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I, I'm never too sure on, on that one. But, but, yes, the people who have really closed compost bins that they say they haven't really put you know they've only put in kitchen waste or something that wouldn't have then yes there are a few mysteries how big are these cocoons you're probably going to say there's a variety of sizes obviously if there's 29 species of earthworm of worm but yeah how big are they what what are we looking for well they are very small so maybe a sort of couple of millimeters inside but you can still see them with the you know with with the naked eye and if they're um quite advanced in development so the baby is about to hatch out you can actually just see a little like dorsal blood vessel mm. just through the surface which is amazing wow so i it's really worth having a having a good look for them but of the biggest species in the world we've got one in the in the collection and that one the cocoon is huge and when the um the baby hatches out it's about the same size as a lumbricus terrestris wow so. and where does that occur in Australia, okay. that one, yeah. It's always Australia. Get, yeah. They get the most interesting things. I know. <laughs> Not to put a downer on our own uh, words, obviously. Yeah, we, we have fantastic ones. And Lumbicus terrestris itself is, is really big and impressive. And um, Aparectidia longer as well is another of these anesics, so vertical burrowing worms. And that's about nearly the same size as uh, terrestris. And that's got a big black head, whereas terrestris has got a really deep red one and yeah like I mentioned there's all sorts of colours some of them are really kind of mottled which is quite beautiful and now there's pinks and greys and um, yeah and look out for the bright green one chlorotica I've definitely come across those before but I didn't get a photo so you know I have to have to get one of those for my (laughs) collection is there a season where they're more active um, or less active are we yeah I sort of think I notice more of those middens that you mentioned around sort of this time of year just as the soil warms up I just wondered if there was actually a pattern to look out for yeah absolutely so earthworms will um, hibernate basically when things are either too cold so you get frozen um, soils but also all through the summer if it's too dry because earthworms as I mentioned they they get their oxygen through it diffusing across that sort of moist mucous membrane and um, so yes they have to stay moist so if the soil is is too dry um, or too yeah as I mentioned it frosty something like that that will harm them they curl up into a ball cover themselves in mucus you might have seen actually when you're digging them really curled up into a ball that's what they're they're doing and then when conditions are right again so spring and autumn in particular um, they'll come back out but obviously if we get a mild winter then earthworms again will be active the whole time the season you'll find them least is summer when things have really dried out that's their that's their worst yeah we definitely dug up a few of those like very tight like knotted worms yes. that's what i was thinking but it does always seem to be the really pink ones i don't know if it's a, a, 
I thought I always thought it was a species that did that, but you say all of them do. Yes, the reason why you see those pinky greys are the endogeics are pin, uh, pinky grey. So you're going to find the endogeics a lot more um, hibernating or estivating because the epigeics will find refuges. So they're going to go into the rotten wood. They're going to be hiding in your compost. They're going to be under things. Like if you have sacks of uh, compost or something, they're going to be under there. Uh, the anesics have those vertical burrows. They go to the very bottom of those vertical burrows so they're way way deeper in the soil so you're going to find the endogeics in their hibernation and they are the pinky the pinky greys so the epigeics are are sort of bright red little worms generally and the anesics have these black heads or deep red heads they're big worms so yes that that's why in the greeny ones they're they're all the endogeics greens greys and pinks okay yeah so it's more of a function of where i'm digging so i'm not i'm just simply not going to be able to dig deep enough for those the very deeply burrowing ones yes you're unlikely to dig deep enough to to find those and as i mentioned the others are all in refuges you talked about with the compost worms that there's that ongoing research about where they actually come from is there anything else that we don't know about worms? Because what we've learned about doing this podcast is how much science is still ongoing, and it's not a done deal. So I just wondered if you could tell us more about what's happening in the world of earthworm science. Yeah, there is a huge amount that we don't know about earthworms. And that's not just the, the UK, that's worldwide. Um, yeah, when I went to um, Nicaragua now, about sort of 10 10 or so years ago there wasn't a single species list for the whole country and yeah we found quite a few but since then I don't think anyone's kind of gone gone back there's huge swathes of the world just haven't been comprehensively sampled for earthworms and so if deforestation is happening or land changes are happening we have no baseline of what was there before you can't conserve things if you don't know what's there and and yeah in the UK when we started up the earthworm society uh, back in um, yeah about 2009 I think um, it started we had like pretty much no records of the earthworm there were a few records but when you had a map of the country and you did the grid squares and put out like where like some of the most common earthworm species were most of that map was empty and so yeah um, we've got the uh, national earthworm recording scheme and now going and we're getting in lots of uh, records but when people have approached us about whether some of our species that we see less often are endangered or things like that we we again still don't have enough data to really make an assessment for that so we're finally now getting in more and more um, records and now we're trying to work out okay what are these um, the specific habitats that these more rarer species need and are they doing okay in these specific habitats? Do we need to conserve those habitats? Um, yes, or, or are they actually just rare um, because they're, they're not doing so well? And in which case, what other factors are involved? And yeah, we're, we're finally starting to be able to do the very starts of that. But oh, there's so much we need to know. And, and they're such an important group. So they've been, yeah, I think just massively overlooked. But, but we're hoping to change that. So if anyone does want to get involved in uh, recording earthworms and things then do yeah do check out the earthworm society of britain's um website and uh join up to any courses and things like that 
So that's to do some citizen science and then looking for what exists in our gardens and then actually reporting it. Is that how it's working? Yes, yeah. So that's just then actually, um, yeah, identifying what what you've got there and reporting it back to us. So then we can use that for big um, research projects to, yeah, to be able to see if we do need to give our earthworms more of a helping hand, especially uh, particular rarer species that we're not um, coming across very often. There have been some great um, citizen science uh, projects on on earthworms, especially looking at the different ecological groups, because that's very accessible to everyone. For the um, getting down to the individual species, that's a little more in-depth and you do have to go on some courses and things. But actually, to look at um, ecotypes and things, and looking at just those broad things on size and colour, yeah, anyone pretty much can, can... can get involved in that and uh, yes so do look out if there are some of these big initiatives again fingers crossed there'll be some more Um, I just have one more question this is important for us gardeners what things can we do to help conserve protect and you know enhance the earthworm populations in our yards fantastic yeah there's actually lots of things um you can do it i I don't know how it goes in with the gardening thing because it does maybe make your garden slightly messy (laughs) but (laughs) the best things to do are things like having rotting logs in your garden that's fantastic for earthworms and really good fun for you too to then investigate what you've uh, managed to accumulate in terms of earthworms and obviously loads of other fantastic invertebrates as well. Um, there's If you've got trees in your garden, just leaving some of those leaves down there for them. That's really important. If you are mowing the lawn, leave a few of the lawnmower trimmings and things. So having a compost is fantastic in the in the garden as well. Having a pond is good too, and you might even get um, like we've got uh, one truly, well, truly mainly um, terrestrial leech as well, which will be really happy there too. Um, so yeah, having having ponds as well, and um, yeah, just basically having a bit of a leaving some of the stuff a bit of a messy garden, but that's brilliant for the earthworms. I'm liking just hearing people say that it's like green light just to sit down and enjoy your space rather than always working it. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you a good excuse. And it's not mess, it's uh, diversity, isn't it? Oh, yes. No, definitely. And it gives a refuge and a home to huge amounts of invertebrates that are going to do so much good for you and your garden. So, yeah, it's giving something back. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for coming and sharing all of your amazing knowledge with us. We've certainly learned a lot, and I will be using it next time I'm digging around in the soil and finding those earthworms. No, thank you very much for for coming. And if people do want to find out more, then um, please do go to the Earthworm Society of Britain's webpage. It's www.earthwormsock.org.uk. We'll certainly be checking it out. Thank you very much again and have a fantastic sunny afternoon. Thank you and enjoy the collections. We will. just want to say a final final thank you to emma sherlock for giving us that interview and teaching us so much about worms that we did not know before thanks emma now just before we go on to the native plant of the week for this episode 
We want to say that there's two good ways to support the podcast. Number one is simply to leave us a review and you can do that on Facebook, on iTunes or on Spotify which helps us climb the podcast charts and we got to number four in the gardening podcast the other week on the charts. That's pretty big. Thanks everyone. The second way you can support our podcast is to donate us a few quid. We had a fundraiser last year as you all know but we aren't raising megabucks for equipment anymore. We just have to pay for our hosting for the podcast soon and as we all know nothing is cheap at the moment including the travel to interview our guests as well so we now have a paypal link instead which is under every episode and there you can donate any amount of money there's no minimum now and we will be grateful for any of your support This month's native plant is Botomus umbilatus. This is also known as the flowering rush or the grassy rush or the lily grass. This is a wonderful pond plant and it grows to about 1.2 metres. It has upright and twisted strap-like leaves, so imagine like grass, with stems of beautiful 20 centimetre wide umbels of cup-shaped pink flowers with darker pink centres and pretty visible black anthers. And these you can see from about mid-July, so now, through to August. They're also scented, so really and truly, what more could you possibly want from a pond plant? The name Botomus, or Butomus, is a combination of the Greek for ox, which is boo, and cut, or tome. This is because the leaves are three-cornered and can be quite sharp, which apparently puts cattle off eating them. Oh, useful advice for all the gardeners out there with their cattle in their gardens. With the cow problem, yep. Despite its common name, it's not actually a true rush. It just behaves like one in that it's found in moist soils like wetlands, river environments or streams or canal sides and on pond margins. It can help to naturally filter water at a pond's edge prevents sediment erosion and it is also a heavy feeder so it can mop up excess nutrients in the water which is a very good tip for you pond owners out there. So where can you find it in the wild? You'll find this plant across a huge area naturally including all of Europe, temperate Asia and northwest Africa. In the UK it's more common in central England but there are populations up in Scotland. Populations in the Tweed catchment in the borders and also along the river Eden in Cumbria are actually growing so it's doing really well in those two places and just to say in Ireland it's actually considered to be an import so you will find it but it's not a naturally occurring plant there. Like quite a few of our favourite UK natives it's proving to be a pretty big problem in North America particularly around the Great Lakes so definitely don't rush (laughs) sorry guys to buy any there. That's rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I liked it. Anyway, in fact, it's such a problem that in some states it's actually illegal to plant it. So do check what the law says if you are abroad. Yeah, that is good to know because we actually have quite a few international listeners. So check where you live before you plant anything that we're recommending. Yes. In terms of its uses, the leaves and flowers will apparently make you a nice yellow dye for any budding natural dyers out there. Oh, I didn't know that. And apparently in parts of Russia, the rhizomes are actually used as food. But caveat, don't go trying this. This is just what I've read on the internet. I haven't (laughs) tried any myself. (laughs) You mean not everything on the internet is necessarily absolutely accurate. I'm so sorry to say, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on now to 
our favourite part, that is the sexual antics of the flowering rush. Thomas umbilatus is herbaceous, which means that the top green growth dies back every winter. In fact, it's actually been shown that it's a bit of a botanical iceberg with several times as much underground biomass as above ground or above water shoots. That is a nice phrase. Botanical wow. iceberg. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, very good. Cheers. You Most... can see why the RHS have her on. <laughs> <laughs> what a gem. Most rhizome growth happens late in the growing season after summer flowering and it's actually via these below ground rhizomes that the plants are most likely to reproduce. That's vegetatively. In the wild, rhizome pieces can just break away, particularly in streams, and then continue growing elsewhere. However, that is also what makes it so hard to control if it's growing where in a naughty place like North America. As well as this vegetative propagation via rhizomes, it also is propagated via bulbils, which we've seen in other plants as well. And this is technically a secondary bulb that forms somewhere on the plant. In the case of the flowering rush, it's actually on the rhizome or the flowers. And again, these bulbils can simply break away and then start to grow elsewhere, wherever they land. Both of these will produce a clone of the parent. So that's with the rhizome and the bulbil. It can, however, also reproduce sexually. Flowers are hermaphrodite and self-fertile, which means they can pollinate themselves, and arranged in umbels, like I said before. Botany. It's worth actually saying that this is a botanically recognised flower shape. It's one we seem to also mention all the time, and it basically means that the stalks of each individual flower is roughly of equal length and come from a common centre. So this results in a flat or slightly curved surface to the whole cluster of flowers. It's really pretty, isn't it? Like with cow parsley. You'll find an average of 42 flowers per umbel on the flowering rush, And the individual flowers each have three rosy pink petals and also three petal-like and smaller sepals, which are pink as well, but they have slightly darker veining. And just to remind you, a sepal is a petal-like structure and it is there to perform a protective function around the flower. Yeah, but sometimes the flowers lose the petals and you just have sepals. So sometimes it's difficult to tell basically what exactly you're talking about. It's thanks to the botanists out there that we know which is which on this particular flower because to us untrained people, they just look like darker petals, basically. Yeah, and if you don't know whether it's a sepal or a petal, they just call it a tepal, don't they? It's very handy, that, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah, just tap, tepal, covers all our bases. Each of those flowers can be up to three centimetres across and when pollinated successfully by insects, seeds are then produced. On this particular plant, the fruit or the seed is botanically called a follicle. And this means that there's one ovary containing many, many seeds. And when it's dried, it splits open on one side to release them when they're ripe. I had not come across follicle before in botanical chat. So that was quite interesting. Seed germination and seedling success has been studied and has shown to be quite poor in the wild, probably because of their slow growth rate, but also because some stands of the plant have also found to be totally sterile. And this is because of naturally occurring chromosomal mutations. For example, many have three sets of chromosomes 
And this also means that they're known as triploid plants, incapable of producing viable seed. The viability of pollen, even on the fertile plants, is also only at about 38%, so that's pretty low. And this viability also rapidly drops off to zero after about six days. So that's 38% even when they're fully fresh. Yeah, yeah, totally. I know. Doesn't sound like a very good chance, does it, in terms of... No, and then what, I suppose, the... I don't know what the purpose of that would be in evolutionary terms. You know, why? Because if you're going to the effort to put in all the the energy to produce the pollen, because you're producing all the pollen of which only 38% is viable. Yeah. Why not just make all of it viable? I don't know. There must be some sort of... Is there an energy saving in producing pollen that's not fully viable? I don't know. I did not read such a fact, so I'm not sure. But as well as all of that low viability of the pollen, the percentage of seed set in Botomus umbilatus is just 1%. 1%. Very, very low. It's not that interested in sex, is it? Let's be honest. I think that's what it's trying to say, actually. Yeah, Yeah. it prefers to do it itself. (laughs) Clonal propagation is easier. (laughs) Nice. Pollinators of the plant include bees, wasps, flies, and also Lepidoptera, and that's our butterflies and moth guys. Bumblebees in particular feed on nectar, which is produced by septal nectaries at the bottom of the pistil. And this is a catch-all term, the pistil, to describe the female sexual parts of the flower. Botanists like to be confusing. And so (laughs) all the female sexual organs, they have names for each of them, and then they have a name for the whole lot lumped in together. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to learn extra words. <laughs> it's like Russian dolls. Like there's lots of, yeah, you drill down into the detail, but the collective is pistol, yeah. if you can remember that. In addition, a few creatures have been found to eat it. A couple of aquatic beetles, including Dinesia sparganii, sparganii, though this is scattered, and also a mining fly, Phytolyriomyza ornate, and also a couple of aphids. Importantly, and excitingly, I think, nymphs of dragonflies and damselflies will also use that tall vegetation I described earlier to climb up when they're ready to shed their larval skin or exuvia and become their adult flying form. Yep, they need something tall in or next to your pond to dry out. We often put it in for that purpose, don't we? Into ponds that we look after. So how do you grow it? You can buy the rhizomes or the plants depending on the season, from reputable pond plant suppliers. Or if you would like a challenge, you could look at propagating some from seed as soon as it's ripe on an existing plant that you might know in your local area. And that's probably around late August into September that you want to go out looking for those seeds. Yes, definitely go for a reputable supplier because there's lots of invasive species that get carried around as people transplant pond plants. Um, so you know don't go and buy something off ebay go to a go to a proper supplier for it yep always particularly with pond plants i think flowering rush needs full sun and it will grow in acid alkaline or a neutral ph and it can also cope with exposed locations as well as sheltered ones it does need a pond margin that doesn't dry out or it can actually be planted into water that's about 25 centimeters deep as long as you've got nice fertile mud at the bottom We recommend getting rhizomes when they're dormant, so that's over winter, and simply plant them into a five-litre pond planting basket, or if you prefer, make an equivalent-sized planting pouch with hessian. 
Make sure the rhizome is covered with about 15 centimetres of aquatic compost. That will, should help it stop floating off from where you want it. And then pop it into that wet pond margin or into a shelf of your pond up to about 25 centimetres water depth, like I said. If you're putting it into water like this, you will need to weigh down the planting container. A warning for people um, using hessian. <laughs> We've been planting plants into hessian sacks um, and putting them into some ponds which have badgers in the garden <laughs> and the badgers love to scoop them out and uh have a play don't yeah, they do. i think they just see them as like footballs or something i don't know what they're doing but we were we just couldn't work it out one of our clients said are you pulling all the pond plants out of my pond and just leaving them on the lawn because you know we, we'd visited on a friday say and then saturday morning they'd wandered down to the garden and they were all just strewn about and eventually they got a um, a trail camera, didn't they? And put it in their garden. Yeah. And it's the ruddy badgers. <laughs> yeah, but this should have gone in our wildlife sighting. It, I mean, we didn't see it, but our client found it on the camera. They have badgers where they didn't know they had badgers before. Yeah, and foxes. Oh, it's amazing. And yeah, and they badgers. are <laughs> They are um, using the uh, wildflower area that we tried to sow. They're actually nice tra- trouncing bed. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of flattened plants. We sort of let them off though, don't we? Yeah, they're funny to watch. If you're opting for the sowing of seed, then plant into moist soil as soon as you collect it. And if they're viable, they should germinate in spring. Simply prick out the seedlings when they're big enough to handle into individual pots and then keep wet as they grow. Transfer these to the margin of your pond once plants are growing well with a good root system. Just a couple of things to look out for if you do grow it. If you have a previously flowering rush and then it stops flowering one year, then there is a chance it could be pot bound. So whatever pot you put it into, they do grow remarkably fast and they can become congested. And that's simply a case of overwinter when it's dormant, taking that rhizome out, spitting it off, maybe planting two clumps where you only had one to begin with if your if your pond's big enough and then pop it back in and that should solve the problem. And also, if you do have a really teeny pond, then I don't actually necessarily recommend this plant because, again, it can spread quite quickly and overrun your pond fairly swiftly. So probably for medium or larger ponds, this yeah, one. Yeah, good to know. Any cultivars? Not that I could find. No, it's just straight up Botomus umbilatus. Just the species. But really, it is a fantastically beautiful plant, guys. Uh, well worth looking up and looking out for in the wild as well, if you're out and about on your summer walks. Well, that's just about it for us today. Like we said, if you want to hear any more of Ellie, then you can head and check out the <laughs> RHS's couple of podcasts. She was on two in the last month. Also, we have to say... We were recorded in our own garden by the wonderful Wildlife Garden Project, who are a YouTube channel and a community interest company who do brilliant work about wildlife gardening. And they've been going for ages as well, about 10 or 11 years now. Yeah, yeah, long, long-standing project. They Laura happen Turner. also to be in Nottingham. Yeah, so Laura Turner and it was Jack Perks also came in and filmed us. Very patiently filmed us. Yeah, <laughs> we're, not, we're not used to the uh, TV life, are we? <laughs> no, we were told that there was a lot of talking. Yeah. <laughs> it was their review of us. Yeah, that's why we have an hour-long podcast, because we can just keep going on yeah but anyway we'll put a link to that in the show notes that's a youtube video so please go ahead and watch that and follow all the things that the wildlife garden project are doing on twitter and elsewhere as well coming up in the next couple of episodes next time we are talking all about garden bees and we are doing that 
alongside reading The Secret Life of Garden Bees by Jean Vernon. An absolutely fantastic book. I'm halfway through it at the moment and I can tell you it really is one to buy. If you're interested in bees in your garden, go out and get it. Get it now and read over the next month as we do and then we can talk about it all in the next episode. And then in the episode after that, we're going to be talking all about rewilding. Don't forget, guys, if you want to support us, leave us a review or donate to our PayPal. And all that leaves us to say in the meantime is keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Bye.